Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on Radio Free Nashville 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. The Taliban that I knew in the 90s and early 2000s is not the same organization today. They're on social media. Uh, They held an interview with a female journalist in Kabul and this could, I, I don't believe them. I think it's all lip service, but they're but they're going through the motions to try to show people that they can engage in governance. That was Mark Reese, friend of the show, interpreter, defense contractor, regional expert. And I know you're thinking, not another show about Afghanistan. Well, yes, because Mark Reese takes us inside the culture and operations of not only Afghanistan, but the whole Central Asian region, because what happens in Afghanistan will affect be felt throughout the region and what happens in the region will be felt in Afghanistan. But first, my name is Jim Walkermuth and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This show is on stations across the country thanks to Pacifica Radio Network. We are also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and on your phone, just search Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by the Green Party of Tennessee, bringing some common sense into the bipolar world of American politics. Go to greenpartyoftennessee.org. So on to the show. I've just asked Mark why it is important that he is on the show. And here's what he said. So um, I'm kind of the victim of history. Uh, I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Fergana Valley in Uzbekistan in the early 90s. Uh, I was part of the second group of Peace Corps volunteers to serve in Uzbekistan. Uh, Fergana is kind of this notorious area for Western pundits um, with ethnic cleansing, instances of ethnic cleansing, uh, so-called fundamentalist Islam, whatever that is. And um, you know, I, I lived in the very conservative town, the town of Kokan, which was the Ahanate a uh, hundred years ago before Russian conquest of Tashkent uh, of the region. Um, the Russians took over the region in the mid 19th century. Uh, and then after that, they took over the Soviets, uh, took over and it became what is known as the Uzbek SSR. Uh, and, and then in 1991, uh, this September 1st, it'll be the 30th year of independence in Uzbekistan. So when I arrived in the, the early mid-90s, uh, I was really privileged to see a newly independent republic that had never existed before in the region. Um, I'm a translator of a, of a Uzbek writer, Abdullah Qadiri. He was a reformist in the early 20th century. And I, I see Uzbek independence as the fulfillment of his dream uh, and other reformers like him. Um, they were executed in 1938 by Stalin. Uh, and I, I see this independence of 30 years, the, the first chance for Uzbeks to make decisions uh, um, on their own steam, you know, on their own basis without anyone having to tell them what to do. And, and so, um, the early 90s taught me a lot. I mean, but at that time, you also had this group in Afghanistan that was starting to form called the Taliban. Uh, you know, in the mid 90s, there was a brutal civil war in Afghanistan. There was a brutal civil war in Tajikistan. There was a war in Chechnya. Uh, Uzbekistan managed to avoid those wars. Um, and 
uh, you know, so that was a great, a great achievement. But I remember hearing about the Taliban the first time on the Afghan border in 1994. And, you know, the, the, the Afghan civil war, uh, I can't overstate how brutal it was. Um, the Mujahideen fighters that were victorious with the Soviet withdrawal in 1989, uh, there was no Mujahideen, there were Mujahideen movements, about five to seven of them. Uh, a civil war ensued where these factions squared off for control of Kabul and control of resources. So when you go to Kabul and you see the destruction that is there in the city, that wasn't the Soviets that destroyed Kabul. Uh, the Soviets quadrupled the, the size of the city and the infrastructure. Um, that most of the main infrastructure projects at that point were, were Soviet projects. Um, in no way supporting the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Um, they killed 2 million people. Um, they gassed people. They mined Afghanistan. Um, something I am more afraid of than the Afghans is a landmine. Uh, and, um, but the Tajik civil, or the Afghan civil war, sorry, um, was basically these factions fighting over the control of Kabul. It, it's been this kind of timeless, whether it was Najibullah the last Soviet leader of Afghanistan before. It's always been true of tribal conflict where the, the, the president of the country is more of the mayor of Kabul who has to then contend with various factions around Afghanistan. So these Mujahideen factions were fighting, my joke is to become the mayor of Kabul, uh, to be the center to receive foreign aid whatever. And what came in instead was this sort of force of nature called the Taliban. Uh, so I've been following the Taliban for a very, very long time. Uh, when I went to graduate school after Peace Corps at the University of Washington, I followed them then. It was one of the reasons why I took Islamic law as part of my graduate uh, studies, is I was trying to understand the Islam, Islamic, the Sharia espoused by the Taliban versus the understanding of Islam that I gained in the Fergana Valley in Kokan, where it wasn't like there wasn't conflict, but you had people for the first time in 74 years with the fall apart of the Soviet Union able to pray openly in a mosque. And then you go south of the border into Afghanistan, you're like, what are these guys talking about? What, what madhab or what school of Islamic law do they subscribe to? And my, my running joke is back then, even the Iranians told the Taliban to, to ease up on some of their proclamations. And, it, you know, you kind of know when, when the mullahs in Tehran tell you to ease up, you probably like, you know, so I thought of the Taliban form of Islam, I call it people may get angry at this, um, but they can go pounce in. I call it the Pol Pot form of Islam. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, a form where, you know, you have a melding of tribal sensibilities. Um, mullahs, the irony is in Afghan culture, culture among the warlords, mullahs are not very influential. They're there for birth, circumcisions, and marriages. You know, and then all of a sudden you got the Taliban expressing this Pol Pot form of Islam, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and, you know, I just, so in grad school, University of Washington was trying to kind of put it all into place. And so by the time 9-11 occurred, I was in grad school, you know, I woke up, saw one of the towers go down and, you know, I was in Seattle, it was a different time zone. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, by that time, mm -hmm. um, when the towers went down, I knew that it had something to do with Afghanistan. And I knew it had something to do with, you know, Uzbekistan would somehow play a pivotal role in all of that. Uh, so that's that's my background is I'm a Central Asianist, what we call a Central Asianist who specializes in Uzbek language and literature and Central Asian culture and history. Um, you know, uh, University of Washington gave me a really profoundly great education and academic underpinning to what I was going to experience after 9-11. Uh, and in 2002, September 11th, 2002, I landed in Tashkent. I went on to run a comparative religious studies grant for the University of Washington, working with institutions in Tashkent, educational institutions of higher education, uh, and the Muftiyat, uh, Al-Bukhari Islam Institute, Tashkent Islamic Institute, to try to create a curriculum that taught tolerance. Um, I am a, I'm, I can't say that I'm a pacifist. Um, I really felt at that point that this was the good war. Um, I have big problems with a group of guys that get together and decide that they're going to burn schools uh, or stone a journalist or keep women from going to school or uh, tell people they can't have a big joke as back then as uh, Afghan men were getting these Leonardo DiCaprio haircuts like in Titanic and the Taliban was banning Leonardo DiCaprio style haircuts mm -hmm. and um Sometimes I just feel like somebody needs to punch in the face to get them to listen. You know, we, we, we hadn't taken Afghanistan seriously and, and now we're being attacked on our own soil. And so I was a true believer in 2001, 2002. Um, by 2004, I was picked up by a contracting company uh, to go translate in, in uh, on the infamous Hanabad Air Base in Uzbekistan. I was pretty shocked by what I saw there. And then in 2004, we had our divorce from Uzbekistan, where uh, the president of the country, Islam Karimov, pretty much kicked us out. Um, and that'll play in later to some of my analysis. Um, and I went on to work in Afghanistan as a, everything from a combat translator to managing Terps. We call interpreters Terps. Uh, I went on to work for Halliburton, um, running the biometric um, screening cells, which will also play into some of my analysis later on. Mm -hmm. uh, so when I, by the time I had arrived in Halliburton, I had injured myself on a mission. Um, I had, you know, 15 years of back pain since. And so I got the job at Halliburton. You know, I was recently married and, and my wife was immigrating to the United States and I had to make a living. And what I loved about the biometric screening cells is I could talk to Afghans all day. You know, I could interview people and talk to them and learn more and, and you know, uh, sort of you know, strange thing to say, I guess. But, but I was called the Qadi of Kabul. Um, my language and culture skills really came into play uh, in terms of interviewing people uh, for access onto these bases and putting them into the biometric system. So um, I left Afghanistan in 2007. I was there for about two and a half years, um, went on to Special Operations Command as a consultant there on language and culture. And then I was picked up by the U.S. Naval Academy, and I was the founding director for the Center for Regional Studies. Um, at the Naval Academy, I mean, I saw the writing on the wall by the time I was in Tampa about Afghanistan. Um, and one of the things I'm kind of passionate about is 
cultural and linguistic knowledge. I mean, you have a lot of shysters in the contracting community. Yeah. You know, people who hadn't been to Afghanistan in 20, 25, 30 years telling you about youth in Afghanistan and some major totally buys into this guy's, <laughs> you know, cock and bull story about his background. And, you know, they become, you know, so I, I saw officers really not Tade. I began to realize, my God, like, you know, people really don't care about 9-11 anymore. You know, they don't really care what happened. We were, we were on autopilot at that point. You know, Stanley McChrystal was talking about government in a box, you know, whatever that is, you know, and, and, you know, like all these sort of coin, you know, slogans started to come up and, and I just, you know, I, I had had it. You know, and the Naval Academy picked me up and I, I started what was called an Afghan studies group. Hmm. And I realized that many, many of the faculty and, and, and staff did, at the Naval Academy didn't really care about Afghanistan anymore. You know, I mean, the military people did because many of them served there. I, I worked with Amy McGrath, who ran for office in Kentucky. You know, she cared. You know, she was flying missions out of Manus Air Base in Kyrgyzstan. There are tons of people who care, but the general population just didn't care. We were on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my voyage. And, and this last week, I, I, you know, I'm talking to some Vietnam vets now. Yeah. And sort of that moment, you know, you realize, like, you know, holy shit, we lost. You know, yeah, here we um, go again. Here we go again. You know, and and I agree with President Biden's decision to pull out of Afghanistan. I truly do. Um, He recently met with Vladimir Putin to ask about military bases in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And at the time I thought, man, that's just a really bad idea. We're very (laughs) unpopular. We're very unpopular in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. And because of the bases, uh, the bases are not fond memories among people. There's, but there's a lot of propaganda out there as well. But the moment, in my opinion, the moment the Central Asian bases didn't become a reality meant we, we lost our ability to hold back the Taliban. You know, you, you know we, we lost the ability to really, you know, have some sort of plan B other than flying missions out of Qatar or Qatar mm. or um, a, a carrier group. What was you know, the tipping point for these countries to, <clears throat> to no longer allow these bases well so in 2005 um there was a, a, a an occurrence in uzbekistan where uzbek troops opened up on uh protesters <laughs> yeah. in Andijan and yeah. killed many people um and you know before we could have any sort of conversation about that you know you know the units that did the shooting the uzbek military units that did the shooting they had u.s training uh, they were trained by U.S. Special Forces. And, and before we could find out what happened, um, you know, Senator John McCain called for an investigation. And the president of the country, and I think he kind of has a point, he's passed away, President Islam Karimov. You know, is before you, you know, you have Abu Ghraib, you have Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I, I let you have a base for the first time in the history of the region ever in the former Soviet Union, ever, even before then, 
this is the, our first occurrence. We're not behaving, U.S. soldiers and, and, and contractors at K2, the base in Uzbekistan, were not behaving well. 2005 occurs, and we call out Islam Karimov, and, and you know, in Central Asian culture, he lost face. Yeah. He, he put his reputation on the line, whether he's right or wrong. I'm, I'm not taking a stance here, but he, he lost face. Uh, and, and John McCain, uh, you know, he's an American hero, but, you know, like, shut up, man. You know, get, give the guy a chance to find out what happened. It, yeah. it, 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 you know, you're just assuming that Islam Karimov knows everything that happened in Nandajan. And so this investigation got called for and Islam Karimov said, get out. And, and so with Kyrgyzstan, we stayed on longer in Kyrgyzstan, but it was still pretty much the same yeah. sort of thing, you know. Um, too, too much ugly American. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I was completely naive, you know, the freaking Peace Corps volunteer, mm -hmm. the prude saying, you know, can you do that on the, you know, of course they can. They came out of a war zone. They think they can do anything. Right. But so we, we did not build a good reputation among the local population at the time. And, and so when it came time for us to go, you know, Islam Karimov, you know, I, I would disagree with how he reacted later by cutting almost all diplomatic relations, you know, and it's not until 2016 when President Shafkat Mirzioyev in Uzbekistan was elected that he's really opened up the country. He's reform-minded. Um, he's very different than Islam Karimov, who is extremely authoritarian. Having a base there, I don't know. That's a big ask. Yeah. You know, you know uh, and it's not just about whether Vladimir Putin's going to be happy. It's about, like, if we're going to do another base there, what's the plan? You know, like, how are you going to implement this base? What are going to be the rules of contractors and military personnel there? You know, what's the exact plan? And, you know, I don't get a yeah. sense now that people are really thinking this out. This out. Right. You know, we're and, reacting tactically. We're not, we're not thinking strategically. Hmm. The moment the bases were, were told, they were told, no, that we won't have a base there. You know, I kind of get President Biden's decision to say, let's pull up posts. Let's pull up tent posts and get out. Yeah. We don't have plan B. We, you know, we have no you know, we have no backup, really. Our options are limited. Let's get out. So I respect him in the sense that he did what George Bush certainly wasn't going to do. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, President Obama sort of kicked the, the can down the road. Donald Trump, we're still trying to figure out what happened there. You know, uh, <laughs> that'll take me the rest of my life. You know, right. and I think I think Biden... Uh, show me in the history of warfare when there where there has been a orderly withdrawal. But over oh, underestimating the Taliban is something that I think we've done for 20 years. Yeah. Well, were you surprised? Were you personally surprised that the Taliban swept in so quickly? I was surprised about the North. And there's a really great uh, commentator on this. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Murtashvili from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, she's also a Peace Corps volunteer from Uzbekistan, Group 5, um, a wonderful professional who has lots of great commentary on all of this. But this idea that uh, Ashraf Ghani, he was an old communist back in the day, back in that Mujahideen period. Mm. 
And he sold the U.S. on this bill of goods that we're going to have a centralized government uh, where there's never been a damn centralized government that's ever worked in Afghanistan. Right. I think maybe Amanullah Khan in the 1920s got close enough, closer of reforming the military and, and the administration of the country. And, and, and so he sold us that there is going to be the centralized government. Uh, he was not elected uh, president of Afghanistan. He was sort of installed by the U.S. government. You know, there, there was an election, uh, Abdullah and Ghani, and, you know, Abdullah won, and we put Ghani in charge of Kabul. You know, and I mean, that's my very quick, glossy assessment. But <laughs> so, you know, so he wrote, you know, Ghani had a nice book that he wrote and he said all the right things and all the key phrases in Washington, D.C. It was just not going to fight for this guy. And right. um, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm kind of of this belief that, you know, in, in, in with any sort of violence, there's always the guys that beat their chests. Uh, and they're usually the ones to be the most afraid. Um, it's the quiet ones you got to really worry about. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, I knew this quiet kid from Arkansas in Afghanistan, and, and he just, he didn't beat his chest, nothing, but his mom would be really upset if she saw what this kid did. Ghani did a lot of chest beating, you know, and at the end of the day, the Afghan military was a, a non-centralized mentality regionally based you know i i've heard reports that when the taliban rolled in they they said you haven't been paid by the government in months here's your pay mm -hmm. um if you surrender we won't kill you. you you just walk away which there's a great historical tradition with that with genghis khan and among many others you know that if you surrender we'll let you go back to your villages here's some pocket money to get you back to your village wow uh, okay in 2019, I guess the Chinese went to Doha and gave the Taliban in Doha $2 billion. The Taliban, the difference between now and 2001 is the Taliban's flush with money. And so my big surprise was that he took, they took the North so quickly. Uh, they took the Uzbek areas. And Jennifer Mutashvili, not only did, has she said that this is a, you know, we never, we were trying to sell a centralized government uh, among regionally based people. But the, but the second thing is, is that the nature of the Taliban has changed. The Taliban that I knew in the 90s and early 2000s is not the same organization today. They're on social media. Uh, they're they held an interview with a female journalist in Kabul. And this could, I, I don't believe them. I think it's all lip service, but they're, but they're going through the motions to try to show people that they can engage in governance, which I don't think they can. But, but taking the Uzbek regions really surprised me. And I think the assessment is, is that the Taliban's changed and they're not just um, Pashtun goat farmers from the mountains, that mm -hmm. they're, they're more multi-ethnic now. There's, ta there's Tajiks, there's Uzbeks. They're made of different ethnicities that have made, you know, made inroads into the north. Yeah, just before we came on, uh, about an hour before, I was watching BBC, and apparently the Taliban has headed to the north because they 
there's some fighting up there. The North has not capitulated. So maybe your assessment of the North is 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 still accurate that they're 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 not willing to cave in quickly. Well, the Panjshir is holding out. Uh, the yeah. son of Shah Massoud, who was killed two days before 9-11, um, has taken leadership in the Panjshir Valley. The, the Panjshir Valley is a tough, very tough place. And um, there's a great possibility that the remnants of that army that just refuses to accept the Taliban uh, will regroup and have Afghanistan 5.0. No, brother. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't have an optimistic assessment. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what I hoped was that we would have a toehold somewhere so that if the uh, Taliban start killing, I don't know, Hazara, like they tried to ethnically cleanse the Hazara in the 1990s and 2000s before we showed up. Uh, if uh, they go back to their old ways. Um, I, I believe that Al-Qaeda will regroup if they haven't already in Afghanistan. Um, Russia's big fear, everyone's big fear is ISIS uh, being able to regroup again. You know, And so now I believe the future of Afghanistan is gonna be decided by Russia, China, Pakistan, and Iran. Uh, those will be the main players. My, my level of optimism, try to find some American optimism in me. You know, the, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979. The Cold War assessment has always been to find a warm water port in the port of Karachi. Mm -hmm. um, Termez, the town in Uzbekistan, is the southernmost border of the former Soviet Union. And the idea was to build a trade route, a transportation route from Termez down through Afghanistan into Pakistan, into the port of Gwadar, or Karachi. The Chinese have built a port off the, off the coast of Baluchistan. And if you build a port there and you have a transportation route that comes through Central Asia, then you are able to then ship materials to and from Oman in a much shorter time, or Iran, in a much shorter time than you normally would be able to if you went over to the land routes. Mm, yeah. yeah. So uh, Robert Kaplan's monsoon is a really good example of that. So recently, President Shavkat Mirziyoyev went to Pakistan, uh, met with Imran Khan, and they talked transportation. So there's a hope there that the Taliban got their start with Mullah Omar during the Civil War protecting the roads. Um, but during the Civil War, you couldn't drive 100 miles without being stopped by a faction and paying some sort of poll tax. The Taliban showed up and they controlled the roads, right? They eliminated these poll taxes, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so that was the origins of the Taliban. And you guys are being patient as I jump around here. So the Taliban is kind of going full circle. If they keep the roads open for these transportation routes, for China, Russia, Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, then there's a chance that they could basically take in revenue, you know, from, from these countries wishing to do transportation. My big concern, of course, is human rights. If um, my big fear is that they're going to get paid off to keep the roads open and we don't really care how you run your country. You can do what you want with women. You can do what you want with children. 
we don't care what you do. We are not ideologically driven as long as you keep the roads open and we continue to pay you millions of dollars a year, then it's all good. The patient is there's a massive copper mine in Afghanistan and there's a massive lithium deposit. And so ironically, um, China especially is looking to Afghanistan in order to uh, extract minerals for, to, for their battery industry. To, to basically create batteries. Uh, and so there is hope that, you know, these countries could invest in Uzbek in Afghanistan. And I think though that um, it's incredibly critical that Uzbekistan plays a, a central role in all of this. And so I'm sort of hoping that they become a hub for different nation, nations coming to try to either do transportation or commerce or try to keep the Taliban in check, try to keep the Al-Qaeda in check. That's a whole lot. Wow. That's a whole lot. Um, Now, back to the situation with the United States. We're all in agreement. I think we're all in agreement that Biden has done the right thing. Let's get out. I'm actually relatively pleased well no i'm very pleased that the taliban didn't come in and and cause a bloodbath and has let the united states basically control the airport um as far as we can tell do you have any insights about what is actually going on on the ground right now well i mean (laughs) There's some key terms I would use, but I won't use them on the radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, we we didn't plan on a quick advance from the Taliban. Uh, I honestly think that, you know, just, and this is just guesswork to a large degree. It's not that we're organized. It's just we're a little bit organized than other militaries around the world. And... Um, we pulled up tent stakes. We did not think that the Taliban would advance so quickly. Um, you know, and, we have. And do you thousands. think that's? Do you think that's just a lack of intelligence, a lack of understanding, um, uh, and, and, and arrogance? A combination of all of it. You know, I. You know, from what I understand, I mean, I, I don't have insight into this part, but. You know, I understand that the intelligence community was warning that dot mill community that, look, you know, you have a far rosier picture of what the Afghan National Army is willing to do. And uh, a Vietnam vet buddy said, you know, the elite within the RVN, the special operations RVN in Vietnam would fight, but your average soldier said, hell no, right. uh, I, I'm not dying here, you know, and and so you have these different contending groups and narratives in Washington, D.C. And at the end of the day, you don't know who's going to fight until you fight. Yeah. You know, there's no other, you can practice all you want, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, are you going to, are you going to be the kid from Arkansas? (laughs) You you know, Uh, you, you know, and, and so we were, we, overestimated the Afghan National Army, probably for political purposes. Uh, We underestimated the Taliban. 
Um, we probably could have had a more orderly withdrawal through the airport. I understand that's a shit show. You know, it makes me really angry. Um, you know, but me doing the biometric screening cells, we have the biometric. If you worked on a U.S. military installation anywhere in Afghanistan, Uzbekistan or Kyrgyzstan, we took your biometric information. We took your biographical information. We did CI screenings of you to assess for threat every year to get a new badge to enter the base. We have all the biometric information we need in order to, to look at an interpreter, scan, take his fingerprints, bring him up on a laptop and find out if he's a good player or not mm -hmm. and put him on a plane and get him home. So yeah. I think that the extraction mm -hmm. of, I mean, we, we have no problem getting uniformed people out. You know, the concern that I have where I think that there was a lack of planning was basically with the thousands of Afghans who worked with us, who believed in us over 20 years, especially interpreters, um, you know, Cat One interpreters, local national Afghan national interpreters who live out on the economy, you know, they did a good fight. Uh, one spring, we lost 30% of our interpreters oh. to fighting. Killed. Yes. Yes. Uh, you pay their family $5,000 and say you're sorry. That's, you know? that's awesome. So, mm -hmm. so the, these guys uh, peeled potatoes for us. They fried our eggs. They, they made our meat food. They ran the, US, the military installations across all coalitions. And as far as I can tell, we've left these people to hang. And that, and that, that was going to be my next question. What are we <laughs> doing with regard to those Afghan nationals that helped us? It, it, well, it's clear that we didn't plan on what we were going to do with them. Uh, it's very clear that we did not have a plan, even though we had the biometric systems in place. Hell, I would have gone to Kabul International Airport and just one after another, you know, give me ten, five to 10 minutes per person, have a group of us. And as long as there's not a red flag on their background, get on the plane. You know, it, it, you know we tried to do it in 2006 um, to try to build up a case for counselor officers so that people could get a visa and go to the States because we saw the writing on the wall for parts of Afghanistan and people who were helping us. And so the system was in place. So, you know, I, I, don't, I honestly, I don't know what's taking them so long. Mm. I, I was for months and months and months, you know, tweet, tweeting about how it's disgusting how we're treating these interpreters. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm alive today because of inter Afghan interpreters. No joke. And, and we've left these people to hang and we can't get them out quick enough. If like, if there's going to be a potential counterintelligence or terror threat from one of these people when they come to the States, we've got vetting for that too, you know, but yeah. we had a really robust vetting system in Uzbekistan that was working or Afghanistan that was working extremely well. And based are, upon that, you are know, you sure they're using on. it? Are they sure they are? I don't think you? they're using it at all. And I, I read an article where the Taliban has managed to, capture some of our biometric equipment yeah i saw that so now now man if i wanted to go kill a group of people and find out where they lived and the names of their kids 
You got all uh, the sources. Would, yeah, yeah, the biometric the biometric database is the list of yeah. people who worked with U, U, U.S. and coalition forces. Yeah. So I, <clears throat> I don't know exactly what they have. I mean, if they've got the database, like a laptop with the database, holy crap. You, you've got everyone who ever entered a U.S. military installation in Afghanistan over 20 years. Why in the world didn't we destroy it if we weren't going to use it or or at least carry the laptop away? At least away? have it encrypted. And... I just would have thought on your way to the airport, you would have made sure that you just, you know, you put all the biometric stuff into a comics box and set it on fire. Mm. Good Lord. Good Lord. So uh, how many interpreters, uh, how, well, how many interpreters do you think are in jeopardy? And uh, just guessing. And then how many, how many, just how many Afghan nationals are going to be found in this biometric database that could be also in jeopardy? What's your thousands, thousands and thousands of people, thousands and thousands. Yeah. And and they're probably the ones that are trying to get to Kabul, the the, uh, the airport, that are rushing to grab a, a wheel or something and falling mm -hmm. off a plane. It's it's hard to put it any other way. So now you have not only fathers who I met back in their day, but you now have their kids working as interpreter, interpreters too. So the biometric system has generations of people in it. By rights, we should be doing. Um, anything we can, everything we can to try and help them. But then again, you look at this country and right away the right wing is saying that uh, the Biden administration is now planning, if he is planning, to try and help these people, bring them back uh, to the United States. And the right wing is all up in arms that more brown people are coming. You're listening to Mark Reese on the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Um, these guys that, you know, probably even prior military on the right, you know, talking about not bringing more brown people in the country, I feel like you've surrendered your rank. I feel like you've surrendered any uh, service that you provided our country when you betray your allies, mm. you know? Um, yeah, there's gonna be people and those interpreters, there are people that are working for the Taliban. Among those interpreters, there are people who may have taken money from Russia or from China or from other intelligence services to find out what, what they were doing on US military installations. There are foreign intelligence threats, but you know what? There is a foreign intelligence threat at the NRA. You know, back in the Trump here, I can't remember the name of the Russian woman we caught the spy. Oh, that's Harper. right. Yeah, yeah. There's foreign intelligence threats all over, all over the all over the country, all the time, you know, students coming in, the whole nine yards. And, and you know, sometimes you're gonna catch them, sometimes you're not. But I would say that with these biometric databases that we have, we interviewed people every six months for a new badge. And you have interpreters that have been getting interviewed every six months for mm. 10, 15 years, Yeah. right? Uh, that's more robust than freaking anything we do in the United States. Like even with the security clearance, you know, you don't get, you don't get interviewed that often, you know, you know, at least yeah. I didn't, you know, so, you know, we have a robust system in place. And if, 
if the excuse of not letting them in is just simple racism, you know, and, and xenophobia. Which it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to hear it. That's too much bandwidth for me. That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, last week we, we took some um, clips from the Veterans for Peace conference and Danny Scherzen, I played him on the show last week. He's talking about, okay, we're out of Afghanistan, but we're still in Somalia and Syria. And we're still, we still got our tentacles all over Yemen. And I'm thinking, well, okay, yeah, that's, and yeah, that's, that's West. Where, where, where else are our tentacles, Mark? Uh, I think we're going to start looking at more Cold War style, you know, less small wars uh, and more, more big wars, more, more bigger. That's not good news. No, 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 not good news at all. You know, but I, for me, I'm just, I'm tired of the whole coin. You know, we never got the language thing. You know, I, I read another article recently that didn't tell me anything I didn't already know, but that, you know, language skill sets are degrading among special operations people. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these were the guys that used to score high on the DPLT. You know, and and I, I just think it's time for us to take a step back, yeah. look at the two trillion dollars we sent in Afghanistan and put that into infrastructure. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that this gives Biden the space to become more of a domestic president. Yeah. You know, where where the new conflicts of the world are going to be, I, I'd say, you know, looking at pushing back on China, you know, um, yeah, we're going to, that's going to be a show over the next couple of weeks. What, you know, our saber rattling against China. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I just don't know. You know, I, I was such a, a coin sort of, you know, in my own little box, my little box just freaking died last week. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, I like the future of the region. I just become maybe, maybe it's just entering my fifties. I'm just a little, and I'm not a beltway Washington DC type I'm more willing to say you know if anyone anyone who thinks they know what's going to happen in Afghanistan is lost their mind yeah um but but you've also brought up that you're worried about ISIS you're worried about al-qaeda you're 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 well we're I think we're all happy with so far the Taliban's lip service now how long can we keep it yeah, you know, you know there, there may come a time when we when we say, thank God, the Taliban are, are in Afghanistan. I, I, I can't I, personally, I got to tell you, I hate them. Uh, I, I, I don't think they have a plan for governance. Uh, I, I don't just as in the 90s, they don't have an economic plan. Uh, they don't wish people well, you know, uh, and, and right now I'm extremely cynical and don't trust them. But but, you know. Uh, when you see, again, the rise of foreign fighters, um, you know, spend some time and spend bulldog on the Afghan border, PAC border to see how much of a sieve that that border is. And through Balochistan and on the Iranian side, it's a sieve. And th- my biggest concern is for Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan and, and Tajikistan has the longest border with Afghanistan than any nation. 
if mm. I rem of any of the Central Asian republics, I think it's a thousand mile border. Mm. And the Tajiks are just not equipped to protect that border. So within the Wakhan corridor, that little sliver that goes up into the northeast of Afghanistan, uh, you have Kyrgyz populations, and you don't know how the Taliban are going to treat that. You know, um, Islam in Uzbekistan is a very tolerant form of Islam. It's the Hanafi school of law, the largest school of law originated in Bukhara, Uzbekistan. And they've always been more tolerant towards women. And, 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 and you know, Sufism, most of the major Sufi orders in the world come out of Uzbekistan. So I can't imagine a future where the Taliban would gain a, a big following in these republics, but it's possible that youth populations could, could see the Taliban as an inspiration. But now that you have a power vacuum with the Taliban learning, learning governance 101, you have other players, other entrepreneurs that are gonna enter the space in, in Afghanistan that can also be an inspiration to people north of, north of Afghanistan, the Central Asian Republic. So I think we need to have America, in my opinion, has largely ignored the Central Asian Republics for since independence, you know, and, and now's the time to- Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, militarily, yes, I think we should stay the hell out of uh, former Soviet Central Asia. But I, I'd like to see some education programs. I'd like to see I'd like to see whatever foreign aid mm -hmm. we had earmarked for Afghanistan is earmarked for Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and get a more robust support for cultural, educational, technical initiatives. Mm -hmm. Peace still sending people to Uzbekistan. No, we, we have not been there since 2005. We were kicked out uh -huh. <laughs> as well. You know, when you, when you open up the Soviet, the Soviet dictionary and look up Peace Corps, uh, it says cover for the CIA. Yeah, yeah. And, and so um, it's a tough deal because Peace Corps, in my opinion, Peace Corps does what no other government organization does. We go to villages and we sit down for two years and do the really hard ass work, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, you know, I always laugh, you know, these special operations guys, you know, talking about how tough they are. And I'm thinking when I when I was in the Peace Corps, when I walked up the street, I didn't have a gun. Uh, I, I couldn't call in an airstrike. I, I didn't have a bunch of other tough guys with me. I was alone. I had to figure it all out myself, you know, and we need more of that type of engagement. But I think that those republics are a little bit leery about having us. Because the flip side is, is the Peace Corps sees all the dirty laundry, man. Yeah. You know, we, we know what's going on out in the villages and that, that can become really, really inconvenient. Yeah. My daughter, Suzanne, was in Togo for two years. Awesome. Uh, are you optimistic, pessimistic, or just flip a coin? Don't know where I'm going. I, I flip a coin. Uh, I mean, with Afghanistan, uh, I think the rules are there are no rules. Uh, I spent 20 years listening to contractors say, if you pay me a million dollars, I'm going to solve your Islam problem. You know, like you know, lots of shysters showing up asking mm -hmm. for money, you know, and my concern is, is that over the 20 years is that we take a step back and we learn to build institutional memories of these countries. 
you know, uh, as a contractor, I went in and did my work and I got lots of cool experience. Well, guess what? I don't work for DOD anymore. My knowledge is my own. How do you retain people and build that sort of institutional knowledge? Um, you know, I believe in peace. You know, uh, I've seen war and, and it's a shit show. And, uh, I, you know, but, but I will say that if you have to go to war, do you, do you want people who have language skills and cultural knowledge or not? You know, do, do you want somebody on the ground telling you if you do that, you're going to endanger the lives of civilians and your own men, you know, and, and, and understand the cultural landscape? Not in the sense that Washington, D.C. Has, has over the past 20 years, but something new. The other thing is, is I think that we should really support the Central Asian Republic's knowledge. I just, I just thought of something because we never hear about the status of COVID in those Central Asian countries. That, see, that's an opportunity for us to step forward and provide sure. more support. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, Ambassador Javlan Bahabov, the Uzbek ambassador to the United States, uh, Mr. Akbar Burhanov, the cultural attache, the staff there at the embassy in D.C., They've done a stellar job. I, I have not seen more activity out of that embassy than in 30 years, mm. in 20 something years. They're very attuned, they're younger, there's no comb over, there's no mustache, there's no <laughs> Che Guevara uniform. You know, I'm being funny here, but you know, the, they're yeah. a younger generation, they're savvy. And I believe it was a million Moderna shots that they just managed to have transported to Uzbekistan mm. to get people vaccinated. Yeah. But there's uh, problems with the internet. There's problems with connectivity. Generally, um, statistics and, and acquiring and stewarding and taking care of statistical information is near impossible in these republics. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so COVID, there's been a resurgence in Uzbekistan. It's very bad right now. Um, but then again, it's very difficult to get uh, a, progn a prognosis uh, of COVID if you don't have effective testing on the scale that you need, that, that America is able. I mean, look, look at us. I mean, we have one of the most advanced medical systems in the world. And we, were, we started this whole talk about how people won't wear masks. It, with the situation in Uzbekistan, the reason that I say that we need to support them and show support towards them is that they're in the middle of a pandemic and, and you know, they're a developing country that, that mm -hmm. needs this sort of mm -hmm. support uh, to sort of lift up the floor for them and to, to move past it. We could have $2 trillion would have given a lot of support. To Afghanistan. Two trillion dollars would have eliminated a lot of issues here. Here, we would have a green uh, infrastructure. We would have had a, you know, and we would have had tons of money to spare in the Central Asian republics. Yep. Yeah. You know, well, but now we, now we, now we don't have a choice in some ways. Like now, we've got the Central Asian republics north of Afghanistan, and Uzbekistan deserves a play place as a major negotiator at the table with other these other mm -hmm. big shots. And we need to support them because I'm telling you, where goes Uzbekistan, there goes the whole region. Mm -hmm. uh, it's sort of the spoke, it's Central Asia, it's sort of the spoke in the wheel of the Asian landmass to steal mm -hmm. from Robert Kaplan. You know, and so where goes Uzbekistan, thus goes the continent in many ways. 
Yeah. And, and, and so we cannot afford to have a failed state in Uzbekistan. And President Shavkat Mirziyoyev is engaged in reform. And sometimes people want to criticize him. But I, I, I say, you know, hey, man, if you think it's easy, you try it. You know, he, he you know, he inherited um, a country that was, I think, on the Freedom Index, something like just below North Korea as one of the most unfree nations on planet Earth. And he took that and in a three to four year period, totally turned it around, you know, and so it's a it's it's an amazing place. And Kyrgyzstan's the rooftop of the world. Tajikistan's the rooftop of the world. These, these are amazing places with incredible people that have kept me busy for 27 years, you know. And, and now with Afghanistan falling the way that it has and going the way that it has, I think it's sort of raised the temperature now and, and increased the stakes for these republics now. Right. I can see them falling under China's umbrella pretty quickly because of the benefit they would probably get by this Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, lots of lots of um, analysis on the Belt and Road, you know, how effective it really is and, and, and that type of thing, you know. But I think increased trade across all nations on planet Earth is the key for Soviets, former Soviet Central Asia. Just, I hate the term, but just to put it geographically into context, for the whole region of Central Asia, I think transportation trade is the key to all of this. And so if, I, I tell the Uzbeks all the time, I'm not pro-America, I'm not pro-Russia, I'm not pro-China, neither should you be because you're a, a, a Uzbek government official, you need to be pro-Uzbekistan. You know, but we have 30 years of independence where Uzbeks are able to operate on their own terms and make their own decisions the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so with that, it comes a, a great deal of responsibility, but also a great number of possibilities. So yeah, China coming in, Russia coming in, I don't, I don't care who it is, as long as they pay taxes and do good, and do good on behalf of Uzbekistan, I'm, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know it's just amazing. blown away by the, you know, the depth of your Thank you. Uh, knowledge and experience yeah. and, and insight into all this. Yeah. Uh, oh, when... I guess I'm a little more of a skeptic about uh, the decision makers in in Washington and what their motivations really are. And unfortunately, I don't think uh, yeah. <laughs> I think sometimes they don't really want to know the culture and all that. They want to control whatever they see as their uh, I, I totally agree. I, I, I'm a complete cynic on that front. You know, you know, because studying a language like Uzbek, let's say, for 27 years is hard. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's hard to do. It's intangible. It's it's difficult to get your head around it. Yeah. You know, and we don't do intangible very well. And, and yeah. hubris doesn't think it needs that. Doesn't help either. <laughs> no. Well, as a language learner, the moment you get hubris, you're done. <laughs> there, there, there was a quote from Matthew Ho uh, from last week's show in which he said that we kept going for 20 years because the Pentagon was getting just exactly what it wanted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you can't, you can't challenge, sorry, I'm playing with my thing. You can't, you, you can't challenge, you know, the, there's this hero worship. 
you know, and, and um, these guys literally have their own theme music playing in their head, walking up the hallway, you know, and, and, you know, and it, it's, uh, you know, I, I love the people that I worked with, but this love of David Petraeus, this love of Stanley McChrystal, you know, this love of personality. I mean, I worked, I got to brief and be in the room with Admiral Olson. I really admired him, the SOCOM commander. Um, I've met flag officers that I really admired. Uh, Admiral Carter from the U.S. Naval Academy really admired in him and some of the, the hard decisions these guys have had to make. Yet the, you know, I look at Nashville as, you know, downtowns become kind of a MAGA rally. Yeah. yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, remember when you could just Oh, I know what you and, mean. I know what you mean. Remember you could go and just get some barbecue and go into <laughs> a, a, a music store. And, and, you know, yeah. and now it's just, you know, the other day, you know, looking at the bumper sticker in front of me, the guy's got an, you know, instead of salt life, he's got a salt life with an AR-15 on, the, on his window. I'm thinking, God, that's like a tacit threat. Yeah, it's a threat. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. saying that, you know, you, you know, we have a problem. I've got an AR-15, you know, and it it's sickening to me, this level of casual violence that's sort of creeped into American culture, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and, and how it's become politicized. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, I think that we're beginning to see societal wise, you know, just in the effects of 20 years of war. You know, we've been yeah. at war for 20 years, and I, I think you can't, as a society, go through that without having some profound baggage that you're going to have to deal with in the end. And if you dare say anything about it that puts a, a spoke in the wheel mm -hmm. and challenges it, you're, you're considered mm -hmm. a naysayer or a mm -hmm. libtard or whatever they call me. Yeah, that's what keeps Veterans for Peace busy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you guys are doing the good fight. We always end up with a song. Even if it's Afghan or Uzbeki. Yeah. We can get it on oh. on iTunes or YouTube. We'll play it. <laughs> oh, man, now that you've said Uzbek, I can, oh, man. Can, my friends will flip if we can get some, uh, an Uzbek song. That would be there. wonderful, yeah. Um, you know, there's a woman uh, that I really admire. Her name's Savara Nazarhan. She sort of fuses um, blues and jazz into Uzbek music. Wow. And so, and she has a beautiful voice. And so, but I, I need to find a specific song that I think you guys would like listening to. Great. That'd, that'd be awesome. And here she is with Andalant Sanova. Have a great week. Yeah, yeah.